today I had the greatest pleasure of speaking with Josh Littlejohn, co-founder of Social Bite. Josh is one of those most remarkable entrepreneurs because he's a social entrepreneur and his work as a homeless campaigner is just completely extraordinary. I want you to listen to his description of being an entrepreneur, about wrestling with your vision and wrestling it into reality. Listen out for the miracle that happened at Christmas and also this most wonderful moment where he realised that he believed in spirituality and something I speak about a lot. It's a lesson to all of us that sometimes if we can just trust ourselves enough to believe so deeply in our missions and we work so truly very, very hard, we will make a difference in the world. I know this conversation is going to resonate with so many of you, leaving you questioning how you too can drive positive change in our worlds today. Enjoy. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not on the High Street for my kitchen table. And since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co., I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to Adobe who've helped bring this podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hi Josh, welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. It's going to be such a pleasure to talk to you. Um, You're one of the UK's leading social entrepreneurs, a philanthropist, homeless campaigner, and of course, the co-founder of the brilliant Social Bite. So welcome to this podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Right, I'd love to jump straight in because I know you're a Scotsman, born and bred. Mm -hmm. um, And I read that when researching you, that your father was also a very successful person. He was a restaurateur, but you actually felt embarrassed of his privilege when you were younger. Is that a feeling you still remember now? Yeah, I mean, I suppose that the background to that is both my parents, my dad and my mum grew up in very kind of working class. My my mum grew up in a farming community in the Highlands and my dad from a working class family in uh, England. Um, So they didn't really start with much. But yeah, my dad, just before I was born, set up quite a successful restaurant in Scotland called Little John's. um, And that grew to be a little chain. And yeah, they sold that out and uh, became, relatively speaking, uh, quite wealthy, you know, certainly for the area that we lived. So by the time I grew up and got to kind of high school age, certainly I was very conscious that relative to, you know, many other people that I grew up with or, you know, people that I was going to school with because I went to a state school, um, our family ha- had a bit of kind of relative privilege and people have their teenage rebellion in different ways. And mine was to kind of really backlash against that and become a bit mortified by it. You know, so, you know, that kind of translated to if my dad would drop me off to school in a fancy car, I would ask him to drop me two blocks away, you know, not to be associated. And then we started, me and my little brother Jack started to give him quite a hard time and say, 
you know, you should be giving your money away to charity and this this isn't fair that we should have so much. And we kind of started to be little kind of social justice warriors when we were sort of teenagers and my dad got the brunt of it. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of my relationship with kind of money and wealth, certainly through my teenage years. So quite hard, probably for your father at the time, who, as you said, came from working class background and probably, you know, worked incredibly hard. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you and I were just talking offline, weren't we, about yeah. how hard entrepreneurs work. Uh-huh. Um, and then to have your children almost <laughs> rebel against it. But it but it really highlights, doesn't it, there was something in you from then, from that point in time about the the luck, the luck that we all are given mm-hmm. at a young age that you can't sort of choose it. Do you think that that was what was following you around? Like, why do you feel like you had that in your heart? Yeah, I mean, certainly looking back now, I feel a bit guilty, you know, that we did give him such a hard time because I can see now, you know, that obviously he worked, did work incredibly hard and my mum did. Um, and they did that primarily to give me and my brother a good life and every opportunity. So, you know, of course I can kind of see that now, but probably couldn't at the time. So I don't know what it was that, you know, was driving that kind of thing. I think probably a big part, just as with any teenager in life, you want to fit in with those around you. So that was a differentiator for me. It was probably just as simple as that. But, you know, my gran on my dad's side was very politically active. She was on all the ban the bomb marches and was a big socialist and it was very kind of politically engaged. So certainly that rubbed off on me and my brother and we started to kind of listen to this band called Rage Against the Machine and it was kind of that yes. sort of attitude. Um so yeah the whole thing just kind of converged and I remember my little brother Jack he won tickets to the Live Eight concert which was I think was in two thousand five which was the big follow-up to Live Aid with Bob Geldof. He won tickets in the local newspaper and we went down to that in London. So we got quite engaged in sort of third world issues and all that kind of stuff. So certainly became very politically motivated and that sort of turned into an aspiration, really. I always, that became my uh, ambition, really. I thought when I go out into the world of work, I want to try and make a difference. And I didn't know quite how that would translate, but certainly I think that was the origins of it. Gosh, it's fascinating. I say it every time. Isn't it funny how things that happen to us in our children or the way that we think can absolutely, you can draw this golden thread Mm. to where we are today. I mean, only in hindsight, obviously. But And as a teenager, you travelled to Ecuador and you spent three months working on a project with street children. Mm -hmm. And it's quite remarkable because you were 17, my son's 17. Mm -hmm. So to go and do something at that age, it must have really shaped your thinking. Again, it already started percolating, Mm -hmm. hadn't it? But did this really sharpen your ideals? 100%. And also kind of started, I suppose, a little bit of the entrepreneurial kind of way as well, because I had to raise the money to be able to go to Ecuador. Um, and I remember I signed up with this volunteer company to go out and the whole thing I would think was going to cost about £3,000. And, you know, so I, I worked in a, a local cafe to try and get some money, but I was also doing car washing at the weekends in the car park and I was doing sponsored swims and I did a sponsored marathon on a treadmill. So I was starting to, you know, have these little fundraising ideas and and, and this kind of stuff. And then obviously going to Ecuador for three months at that, that young age and being very involved in this kind of social project, working with these young street kids and stuff. Yeah, it was a really formative experience. And 100% I remember coming back on that flight and I was due to start university at Edinburgh University just a few weeks later. 
I remember being so idealistic that, you know, it's probably my peak kind of idealism and that I'm going to change the world and all this kind of thing. And then I got back and uh, went to university and slowly but surely that idealism basically kind of dissipated over the course of the four years of that university. And, you know, you start to make friends and I got quite ingrained in the kind of drinking culture and drinking a lot. And, you know, I sort of lo felt I lost a lot of that kind of very politically idealistically charged um, kind of way that I was and only sort of picked it back up, kind of uh, went on the, on the other side of university, really. You, you look back at that time slightly with sort of, you know, how, how dare you? How, how dare you go to uni and have quite a few pints and, and study and do something for yourself. I think you're mm -hmm. along with every single other university um, kid out there. But you returned, as you said, to Scotland and you attended Edinburgh Uni studying politics and economics. You graduated during recession and were left disillusioned by the sort of corporate recruitment process and all that you were sort of involved in. I can imagine, you know, everyone's going off in their different areas of life, you know, and all those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And although you weren't really looking to start your own business, you had these ambitions, you know, that that spark. Um, do you think that was reignited straight after uni from, you said that you started to think these entrepreneurial thoughts before. How did you get back to that place? Um, well, I suppose growing up, because my dad was an entrepreneur, I was always around that kind of mindset um, of you can kind of achieve what you set your mind to. And that was a big, important thing. We, you know, we were taught by my dad and you just kind of see the world of business and, and entrepreneurship growing up. But that was never, ever my aspiration to become an entrepreneur or to get involved in anything like that. And yeah, when I left university, my original aspiration was to go and work for the government. And I applied for a government job as a, effectively a civil servant. Um, I studied politics and economics and I wanted to become an economist. And I envisaged myself maybe advising developing nations on economic policies. And I thought maybe one day I might be able to go and work for the UN or that was kind of where I my aspirations lay. So I applied for one of these graduate scheme uh, interview processes with the government and it was a six month long application process and there was psychometric testing and you had to go down to London and do these day assessment centres and I got right through to the very last stage of it um, and I just I remember I got a single sentence email at the end of that process saying very sorry you're unsuccessful didn't get the job so I was pretty disillusioned by that and I thought oh, I really don't want to have to kind of go through that again and jump through all these hoops just to sort of be told that you're not good enough at the end of it. So that sort of pushed me more of a, an entrepreneurial route. And at the time, I had no knowledge of any kind of social enterprise concept. Um, so my definition of entrepreneurship and business was just a very traditional one that you set up a business and the primary success metric is to trying to maximize a profit and, and, and make money. Mm -hmm. um, so at the time, I brainstormed different ideas and they all seemed to revolve around events. So I set up an events company that I call Capital Events and I started to organize uh, various events. That The first one I did it was a little fashion show that I put on during the Edinburgh Festival. And I remember I had such a great time putting it on. I, I made £3,000 and it, that was the first time in my life that I really took on something entrepreneurial. And I just remember such an incredible buzz. My phone was ringing off the hook with different problems to solve and, you know, all this kind of thing. And yeah. from that moment on, you know, I got the bug really for, for entrepreneurship. And, you know, I kind of, as with any addiction, you kind of keep one up, 
upping the ante every time. So the events got bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and, and yeah, that was kind of the start of that sort of entrepreneurial road. It's a little bit like sliding doors. Mm. I mean, we're going to go on to what you built, but my goodness, imagine if that email, that one line had been well done for doing your six months of interviews. Yeah. You're successful. I mean, it is quite incredible, isn't it? hundred percent. And like, you know, through the course of my work now, I work with civil servants quite a lot. And honestly, I would be the worst civil servant in the world. Like, <laughs> I, was, I didn't want to say yeah. that, by the way. I didn't want to say that, but I think beings like us are not employed mm. by people like them. Do you know no. what I mean? Like, I think we would do their absolute heads in and not maybe yeah. last long, or we would blow things up, or we wouldn't. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, it is 100%. It's, it's not, not our uh, natural habitat. Definitely. So, tell me about the very beginning of Social Bite. Mm-hmm. It's a cafe that you co founded in Edinburgh um, in the summer of 2012. How did it first come about, and how did you initially become involved in the homelessness issue? Basically, I was running this events company. Um, You're talking now from 2008 through to 2011. um, And we're staging all these different events. And as I say, I'd kind of caught the entrepreneurship bug. And I was absolutely loving this process of having ideas and working really hard to manifest them into reality and then seeing them come to life and and become a real thing in the world. And I just thought, you know, such a buzz through that process. But... In the course of the events I was putting on, as I say, it was quite one-dimensionally focused and the whole aspiration of them was to try and you know, make a profit um, and so on and so forth. So I kind of felt like I was yearning a bit to try and reconnect with the younger idealism that was always my aspiration. Mm-hmm. I kind of felt I'd let that go a bit. So I was kind of clutched, you know, I felt I was metaphorically clutching to try and cling on to yeah. something um, that more aligned with that. But as I said, kind of really uh, fallen in love with, with being an entrepreneur. So back at that time, I stumbled across a book by this guy called Professor Muhammad Yunus, who's an amazing guy. He won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2006, and he's based in Bangladesh. He basically won the Nobel Peace Prize. He set up this thing called the Grameen Bank. Uh, so he's the kind of founding father of what's now known as microfinance where they basically lend very small amounts of money to poor rural women in Bangladesh who can't read or write. They've never had any kind of loan finance before to enable them to start micro-businesses. And the repayment rates are very high. And he basically built this bank up to where it lends out over a billion dollars a year to like 10 million women. And he won the Nobel Peace Prize for this. And... I picked up his book and within it, he described an idea that he called a social business and where he talked about how in Bangladesh, he went on to create over 50 different companies in Bangladesh, but he never owned a single share in any one of them. Um, So every single time it was because he kept seeing these social challenges in Bangladesh and his solution was to try and set up a business format to tackle the particular challenge because he felt that was more sustainable and more scalable. So I was kind of reading this thinking, wow, this perfectly aligns my kind of earlier aspirations with my newfound uh, passion for entrepreneurship. So I decided to write off to Professor Yunus and said, you know, I'd love to come and meet you. Can I come to Bangladesh? And so I didn't really hear back from that, but I was quite persistent and pestered and so on and so forth. (laughs) And um, so I think... Another trait of an entrepreneur. (laughs) Yeah. So I think eventually they got so sick of me phoning them up that they said, look, he's in Bangladesh in October. This was 2011. Um, So if you want to come to Bangladesh, then you can come then. So with my 
girlfriend at the time, Alice, who went on to co-found Social Bite with me, we both went out to Bangladesh in October 2011 and we met Mahamajinis and he ended up coming to Scotland a few months later and spoke at an event we were organising and all this kind of stuff. So by this point, I was completely, uh, it had lit a fire of this social business idea. And at the time with my events company, I had a little office in the centre of Edinburgh and we were going out most days to get a coffee at Starbucks and a sandwich at Pret-a-Manger. And we kind of thought maybe if we could set up a lunchtime cafe, but it had a social mission, then that might work. So that, that became the origins of we opened this social bike cafe. Um, but originally when we first opened it, it was a very one dimensional concept and it didn't actually have anything to do with the homelessness issue at all. Um, when we first opened the cafe, we wanted to try and make a profit and then we'd chosen three charities to try and distribute the prof- the profits to. So it was quite a simple idea and it didn't have anything to do with homelessness. But we'd been open for about two weeks and there was this young guy called Pete who was 19 years old. He was homeless and he was selling the Big Issue magazine on the street corner just outside the front door of the cafe. And he kind of wandered in one day after a couple of weeks and he sort of plucked up the courage this day and he asked us if he could have a job. And we kind of thought... Why not? It seemed a nice thing to do. And our whole mission was to try and make a difference. That seemed quite an obvious thing we could do to make a difference. Yes. Um, so we gave him a job in the kitchen and we just saw that the employment was so transformative for him and he was working super hard. And then another job opened up and we thought, let's try it again. And we said to Pete, do you know, do you know anybody else uh, that's homeless, Pete? And he said, well, my brother, Joe, he also sells the big issue. So we said, okay, and we gave his brother a job and then another job opened up and we said, do you know anybody else, guys? And they said, well, there's a guy down the street called John. You might want to give him a chance. So that's kind of how we first got involved in, in the homeless issue. My goodness me. And if Peter hadn't have come in, mm. you know, yeah. that day and uh-huh. asking for that job, you know, mm-hmm. because again, we I talk about it often when we you know, fall into our industries or we fall into the pattern like a moth to the flame. Like we, we, as you said, I'm going to open this up and then the profits, I'm going to divide up into charities. You know, if anyone listening, this is the whole point of switching it up is actually don't follow those patterns and rules. Mm -hmm. That's actually one of the most important things. But we tend to just find ourselves, don't we, Mm -hmm. in what's already been cast, Mm -hmm. you know, rather than casting our own Mm moulds. So you hadn't previously had any experience or even interactions with those who are homeless. But I know you've spoken of when hearing the stories of the homeless people who you were employing, you felt this real sense again, like almost your younger self, Josh, you know, of injustice when it came to how unfairly they'd been treated. And Social Bite offers food, training, employment opportunities for homeless people, donating 100% of profits to charity. And I think when listening to your story, what strikes me is that there's a sense of openness that you had. Um, And sometimes I think we can search high and low for what and where we might be able to make a difference. But it actually literally might be on your doorstep, in your community, was there a sense of being a local charity important to you? As in, you could absolutely see the difference you were making rather than maybe supporting something abroad, etc. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so, you know, and I think it's like you say, it's, a, it's another kind of sliding doors moment, you know, and the ironic thing is that at the time, I kind of thought I was changing this guy Pete's life, but in actual reality, it was much more the case that he was changing the direction of mine and our whole organisation and the whole kind of social enterprise. You know, and I suppose, again, relating it back to my kind of childhood, 
I started to become aware at that point when I, I was it, meeting all these guys for, from the, and becoming fr, you know fr- friends with them through our work from a homeless background, just how fundamentally different the cards they were dealt were when they came into the world by comparison to me, you know, and I think there was this stigma around the homeless issue where there's sort of an, an unsaid assumption that people have maybe made bad choices in their lives. And, you know, there's a big correlation with addiction and people kind of assume people have kind of become addicted to drugs or alcohol and therefore have ended up homeless. Whereas what I discovered just anecdotally through speaking to people that we were employing and then we started to interact with lots of people every day by giving out free food. And we started to ask them their stories and said, you know, how did you become homeless? Would you mind telling us? And what became a bit eerie was no matter who we asked, we almost got told the exact same story. And it was some variation of when I was a kid, I suffered this traumatic abuse. I got taken into the care system. I got bounced around different kind of children's homes and I became homeless when I was 16. And it was some variation of that story. So it became really apparent that this was not about individual decision making. This was systemic and society was failing what were vulnerable children and there was no kind of safety net for them. And then when they found themselves in that most desperate of situations of being homeless, then it's even crueler because society at that stage turns its back and stigmatizes them and assumes it was their own fault, even though at many times they were still only teenagers. And um, so when I compared that to the absolute privilege you know, that that I got brought up with, not just financially, but in terms of love and support and opportunity, you know, then that was very motivating for me because, you know, I, I felt like it was a responsibility to do as much as I could, you know, through this this uh, social enterprise we were creating to start to make a difference in that. It's reminding me of another podcast I did with a lady called Katie Emk, who has a charity called Fine Cell Work um, and it she helps prisoners learn the art of fine needlework and then has a program for when the prisoners leave and actually helps them to gain employment because now they have a skill and a trade and the reoffending rates in her group is something like, well, she hasn't had someone reoffend in three or four years now, which is actually mm-hmm. unheard of when you look at the reoffending rate of an average prison or group of 50%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's reminding me of the fact that when we did this podcast, people were writing in saying, I had never even thought of the prison system. Mm-hmm. I had never, I just think jail. I think people go to jail, they did a bad thing. You don't look at the stories, you don't look at the reoffending mm-hmm. rate, you don't look at why, because basically, as she says, your sentence doesn't finish when you finish your sentence, mm-hmm. it starts when you leave, yeah. because forevermore you will be that. This is like drawing for me when you're speaking about this again, you know, of a, of a an issue that we do not speak about enough, mm-hmm. right? We, we, we want to almost say you've gone to jail because you did a bad thing. You're homeless because you made bad choices. Yeah, 100%. Isn't it? That's what we sort of allow ourselves to think. And then we get on with our daily lives because that's that's sort of the way it is. But when you speak about it, you speak about children being abused and basically younger than my son, ultimately ending up having already had the most horrific path and then on the streets. And then we say- It's your own fault. We're not going to help you any further. It's your yeah. own fault. When you were coming into contact and all these stories, did you feel anger? Because there's a sort of, you know, you're now learning these things, but other people knew them. 
other people knew these statistics? I don't know if I would even that way thinking because I suppose the other thing to bear in mind is we were in absolute startup mode within our own business as well. And, you know, as a, for context, yep. like we opened Social Bite in the first, I sold one of my events uh, for £40,000. We invested all of that money into the shop fit. And when we opened the cafe on the first day, we had, we'd run out of money. There was no money in the bank. And the fruit, the fruit and veg man came yep. with the supplies and it was cash on delivery. And we had to make some excuse and say, oh, you know, come back tomorrow. And then we paid him out of the first day's taking. So it was beyond naive, you know, in terms of how... We, we were kind of starting out and it should have gone bankrupt a hundred times. It was only a series of miracles, I can only describe it, that um, prevented that from happening. Um, you know, so I suppose within that context, we were immersing ourselves in this issue. We were employing these people, you know, at one point, Pete and Joe's accommodation fell through and they moved in with me in my one bedroom flat. It was like proper chaos, Cat, you know, juggling cash flow. I put on tons of weight because I've, I think I was stressed and I was just surrounded by sandwiches all the time because it was a sandwich shop. So the whole, I just remember those first few years as being extremely difficult um, from the business fundamentals of trying to keep the show on the road and keep it afloat, um, as well as really getting immersed in the issue. So I don't think I was particularly politically yeah. aware around the issue or thinking in anything like that. I was thinking more yeah, you were surviving day to day. as a startup whilst yeah. immersing myself in the the kind of homeless issue you know and the other element was the food provision we introduced the sort of pay it forward system which has become very integral to the the cafe model so customers were encouraged to buy something extra for someone that was homeless to come and get something for free later um, and sort of pay it forward and we're inviting homeless people in so between the food provision we found ourselves maybe feeding 40 or 50 people a day in the little cafe um, and the employment yeah it was definitely kind of an intense time but it became the whole identity really of social bite and the foundation that we, we built it from those beginning days of being an entrepreneur i think sometimes we have people ask us just to dig in a little bit mm -hmm. more because it's what we can then go on to do is talk about, you know, how your business has grown and some of the other things that you have been able to accomplish. But what is it that keeps us so in? You know, you've got two people now living in your one bedroom flat, mm. put on weight. You don't, you know, you're not feeling good about yourself. You're hustling. You're trying, you're not obviously paying mm. yourself much. You're, you, you, do you mm. know what I mean? No doubt your relationships yeah. were suffering. It was relentless, <laughs> no doubt. It is not one day off ever, ever, mm -hmm. ever. HR issues, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, and your mm -hmm. HR issues must have been way more than a normal yeah. employer's mm -hmm. HR issues. What kept you stuck to the idea? What kept that commitment and that loyalty? It's hard to pinpoint, but it's probably a trait that's common amongst you know the majority of entrepreneurs I would imagine and I think it's a very it's a, that's entrepreneurship isn't it and it's sort of an insanity that probably these entrepreneurs possess where you can just kind of see the vision you, you can see the future you, you, you understand that you're able to manifest this into reality and you will sort of wrestle it into reality even if it's not going well as it or not going as you planned you can kind of try and shape the world you know so that it does so I think it's just a blind faith that you know you, you will be able to do that but as I say it, it, it's kind of certainly from my experience it's partly down to that entrepreneurial drive of course it's down to the team that come around you but it's also down to strong strokes of luck or it's some kind of divine intervention 
and some kind of little you know series of miracles that that can happen to keep things alive and eventually help them to to thrive and you know I've I went into this whole journey very scientific and atheistic in my kind of worldview and I've come out the other side of it extremely spiritual believing that there must be some higher power because um I definitely feel we've had a lot of kind of yeah it almost feels like divine intervention that that's kind of helped us um the organization get to where it's got to now my goodness you know two things I wanted to say there One is, I too believe so much in the spirituality of being an entrepreneur, which is just, you know, sometimes you read all the business books and you come into the business world and, you know, the corporate world and what you should be doing. And then you sort of talk about, you know, the interventions and asking the universe and the power of people and spirit and energy and all these sorts of things. And I'm so glad you say that because it's something I'm absolutely, you know, an advocate of, that it is quite an incredible experience for the entrepreneur themselves. But also when you describe entrepreneurism, I've never in 20 years heard anyone describe it so well. I just think you wrestle your vision, you wrestle it until it manifests itself. Mm-hmm. You know, what a, just so <laughs> eloquent. You. My Thank God. You. I mean, I'm like soundbiting you the whole time here. So it's as if you're like, um, you're ready to be made into a real, you're ready to be made a into meme, a yeah. meme. I don't know yeah. what it is, but you're uh-huh. you're going to be, yeah. by the way. Well, I'll tell, I'll um, tell you a quick story um, about, yeah. you know, one of those kind of little miracles, really, um, that, that was quite a pivotal moment, really, for Social Bite. So this was in 2014. So we'd be going about two years. And as I say, we ran this pay it forward system. And the way it used to work is that customers would come in and they'd uh, get their lunch and they'd maybe buy an extra sandwich or an extra coffee. And then we'd tear off the receipt from that donation and we'd put it in a big glass jar that was on, on the counter. And then homeless people would come in throughout the day and they'd have a rummage through the jar and they'd say, oh, there's a sandwich. And then we'd throw the receipt in the bin and they'd redeem the sandwich for free. So that's the way it used to work. But at that time, our cash flow situation was very tight and the jars were routinely running empty. Um, so we'd quite have, often have to turn people away and say, sorry, there's nothing there at the moment. We had a second shot by this stage, so maybe try the other cafe or come back tomorrow. And that was kind of the way it was going. And I remember we got, we're coming up towards Christmas that year and cash flow was really quite tight. And I was getting particularly worried that going into the January of the new year, about meeting payroll and you know all these kind of stressful things and certainly very worried whether we could sustain this food provision particularly as the demand for free food was outstripping the supply of donations in store so anyway we're coming up to christmas and i decided that year that it would be a nice thing to do to open up the cafes on christmas day and do like a christmas dinner service for homeless people and the truth of that is is that my parents had got divorced a few years prior and it was getting increasingly awkward as to know whether to go to my mum's house or my dad's house. Mm-hmm. And there was a bit of family politics. So I thought, this will get me out of it. I'll um, open up the shop. <laughs> um, so- <laughs> That's an excuse, by the way, that no one could tell you off. Yeah, no, right? exactly. <laughs> they would be, yeah, you, you, you pulled the trump yeah, card there. So I thought, you know, so it was a bit set, you know, it wasn't totally down to altruistic motivations, but I thought, you know, we'll open that shop. So we had, by this point, we had a shop in Edinburgh, a shop in Glasgow. Um, so we decided to open two shops on Christmas Day, but we thought we'd better at least try and cover our costs for doing this. So I reached out to a friend of mine, a guy called Ollie, who runs a website called itison.com, who run kind of daily deals where you can buy a lovely hotel break or a nice restaurant or whatever, and they offer good daily deals. And I asked Ollie if he would run a deal on his website where 
somebody could buy a homeless person a Christmas dinner for five pounds. And he said, yeah, we'd love to do that. He goes, how many would you like to sell? And I said, well, if we could maybe sell 800 dinners for five pounds, then that should cover the cost for letting us open in, in Edinburgh and Glasgow. And he said, well, what happens if we sell more than that? And I said, well, to be honest, the jars are running empty quite frequently. So we might be able yeah, to so we can maybe think, top them up yeah. for a few weeks or a few months, you know, if we manage to sell more. She said, OK, so he launches this deal on his website, buy a homeless person Christmas dinner for five pounds. It was about two weeks before Christmas in 2014. And we were all in the office kind of watching it, hoping it would sell this 800 target. And it sold the 800 dinners in about 10 minutes. Um, and then it ran through to Christmas and it sold 36,000 no. Christmas dinners for a fiver. So that completely changed the sort of funding dynamics of the charity. And it kind of resulted in, in those jars effectively being topped up for a whole year. And it kind of introduced a fundraising dynamic alongside the trading yes. uh, reality. So, yeah, that was an example of, you know, a miracle that we hadn't really planned a for. But it just came our literally. way. Exactly. Oh, my goodness me. That must have been such a moment. Mm. And for everyone coming into those cafes and seeing the jar topped up. Yeah. I mean, the idea for businesses creating social change, you know, has evolved, hasn't it? And it's one we're much more aware of in 2022. Um, you've now been running for 10 years. Have attitudes changed, would you say? And do we, as consumers, have a greater sense of social responsibility? Or are we still stuck in believing that we can't, you know, vote with our money? Yeah, I mean, I th I'm sure it's significantly evolved over the course of the last 10 years. And I'm sure there is a much more conscious consumer now, whether it's, you know, for social impact or environmental sustainability, you know, or all these kind of things that, that people care about. I think, you know, brands and commercial businesses are increasingly trying to incorporate that into their uh, activities and their messaging. And, you know, there's a much stronger focus really on corporate social responsibility. And that has some spin-off benefits for a charity you know, like ours, you know, because we do have a fundraising uh, dynamic and, and many businesses support us. We, we work really closely with, with the business community. So I think it's definitely evolved a lot over, over the time. I suppose what I find quite interesting is this more purist sort of social enterprise model that I was so inspired by with Muhammad Yunus, because what I think is interesting about it is in an entrepreneurial context, because I didn't own any, any shareholding in Social Bite and the motivation was really from the start, we kind of purposefully relinquished the personal profit motive. So I think like in a way we kind of switched that button off in, in my mind. And that makes life quite interesting in terms of the decisions that you then start to take. If that button had been turned on and we were th really thinking about profit maximization, would we have took Pete on? Because we would have probably known that he might not be all that productive. Um, he's probably going to be quite unreliable. It's going to be quite a costly thing to do. We might have, but we probably wouldn't have took another three or four on. Mm. And, you know, the reality mm. of the pay it forward thing is if you've got a queue of people from a homeless background coming in to get food, then it, that does have a negative commercial impact because ultimately some people just would rather go to Pret, you know, and you, you so you're aware of that, but you're kind of doing it. So there's this constant balancing act between the commercial drivers uh, and we are, you know, want to run as profitably and as commercially efficiently as we can with the social and sometimes they're diametrically yes. opposed. So I think for me, it's a really interesting business model that enables you entrepreneurially to take very different decisions that you might otherwise take. And I think you can create a significant impact in doing so. And um, so it's something I'm keen to try and inspire and encourage young people, you know, maybe wanting to 
get into business to, to consider the kind of social enterprise route because I think you know you can do some exciting things with it. As you know, I'm passionate about celebrating small businesses and championing creativity within all of us. That's why I'm thrilled to be working with Adobe Express, who each week are handing over their ad break to a small business founder, shining a light on their own businesses and sharing how Adobe Express really is helping fuel their creativity. Hello, I'm Kath Colbrook and I'm the creative director of katherinecolbrook.com. It took me ages to come up with that business name. For 16 years, I've been on the small business roller coaster, conjuring up playfully cool designs that are all proudly made in Britain. Over this time, I've created mugs, prints, tea towels, trays and aprons. My current bestseller is a Liberty Fabric personalised print. If you're anything like me, you're a busy business owner with a million things to juggle. I love to continually reimagine and elevate my business content, but it can feel overwhelming at times. Well, hello, Adobe Express app. This week, I've been having a bash with this bad boy, and it's great. There are tons of beautifully designed templates that you can customise to bring a really comprehensive look to your brand. I'm currently working on a raft of new products, and I now know when I get to the point of having to produce content for social media, brochures and flyers, the Adobe Express app is going to save time, make my life easier, and really elevate my brand. It also has this super cute bit where you can dial in the hex code for your brand colour. It's like the lock on a magical rainbow padlock. So if you want to see what cool new products I have up my sleeve, and believe you me, I want to see them too, and stalk my new content, you can follow my latest moves on Instagram at Catherine Colbrook. Or you can sign up to my newsletter at katherinecolbrook.com where you can currently get 10% off. P.S. Holly Tucker, we love you. Thank you once more to Adobe, who have helped to make this podcast episode happen. If you want to find out more about Adobe Express and how it can help your business, head over to adobe.com slash go slash Holly Tucker. Now let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. I love this whole idea. Someone might be thinking right now while listening to you, but you need to make a living. Yeah, yeah. You know, the entrepreneur needs to survive. And there is a there's a whole sort of reality to that, yeah? So you're 20 years old, 30 now, you'll be 40, you'll be 50, your, your life will change, your needs will change. Yeah. Is that something that you're consciously dealing with because of course you don't have a sort of a crystal ball on how this all works out yeah well basically i remember i went to one of Muhammad Yunus's conferences right at the start of this and i was wondering that i said how do i make a living you know this is a bit awkward yeah uh, so i remember i put my hat i remember because I, put- <laughs> I also need to eat yeah. that's the thing so Sorry. i remember i put my hand up in the conference and i said i asked the question i said you know what how what's the thing if we relinquish the profit motive then what's the kind how do we earn a living so they said well we implement a rule where uh, the person at the top of the organization should ne- should never earn more than seven times the person at the bottom so that creates a parameter which actually gives you a pretty healthy earning potential but it does switch off the idea that you could become very very wealthy which suited me it w- you know it doesn't suit everyone but for me i can fulfill my personal materialistic aspirations within that parameter or at least for the last 10 years yeah that suited me now recently i got married and my wife now pregnant so we have a baby on the way so uh, will i continue to be so purist 
probably not. Like I think I will probably evolve in some of the things I do. I may try and look to do, express my entrepreneurship and other commercial avenues additionally to what I do. So I suppose like if you are going to go down the social enterprise route and kind of be quite idealistic about it like I was, it's a great time to do it when you're young and you don't have responsibilities and yes. you can kind of really throw yourself into it. And I think... You know, it's not mutually exclusive. I think you could, obviously, like, as I say, I could set up other businesses that are more commercial or explore other forms of income generation for myself. But I think within the context of that one organization, it's a really interesting decision-making dynamic that's created when you set parameters around that and you, you take out of the equation. I think it's fascinating. Yeah. Almost the only way it works in a sense there. But as you said, you know, that was a really helps me understand then how it can remain pure because you, as you said, you can create other revenue streams. Um, I'm interested, the business has had some pretty amazing um, celebrity endorsements. I mean, you've had visits from George Clooney, Leonardo DiCaprio, Harry, Meghan, and you ultimately grew your small chain of sandwich shops and most recently you've opened a branch um on the strand is that right in london yeah, yeah. how's that been in terms of the difference before i ask you about the mm -hmm. scaling scotland and on the strand what's that been like it's, it's only been open for about two weeks on the strand so time will tell um exactly exactly how it goes there but we've been really generously supported by the landlord of the the unit in the Strand, which is Coots Bank, they own the retail unit that, that we're occupying. So they were, again, corporate social responsibility, very keen to support us, you know, launching in London. Um, and we've, we're working with a partner operator in London, uh, which is a big hospitality company called Baxter Story, who are supporting us with the sort of commercial operations on the ground. So I think, you know, so far... Uh, it's off to a great start there and we've had tons of people come in and pay it forward and really engage with the concept with the first jobs being created from someone locally with a homeless background and he started last Tuesday you know so it's kind of replicating the model we've done in Scotland I think hopefully it's something that Londoners will get behind um, and you know yeah. it's right opposite Charing Cross Station so there's lots of commuters that can hopefully go and get their morning coffee from there and stuff and you know my experience is people are naturally altruistic and people naturally want to do good yeah. so if you make it easy for them and it's a case of that's where they go and get their morning coffee then hopefully that's something that people will engage if regardless you know where we open i'll definitely be visiting and tell me scaling a social enterprise uh, did you have aspirations to make it the next Pret? Originally, when we first opened and we first kind of, you know, it was kind of like, yeah, let's take on Starbucks and all this kind of stuff. And then we got to five shops, two in Edinburgh, two in Glasgow and one in Aberdeen. And we realised, oh, this is really quite difficult, you know, to do what we're doing, even at that scale. Um, and, you know, cracks start to appear, like you say, HR issues. We realised after some time that just offering people from a homeless background a job and expecting that to just work without anything else was naive. So we realised we had to invest in additional support resource alongside the job. So people started to get help with practical things like getting bank accounts open or things like that, or and also more emotional support around some counselling and um, different things. So we started to invest in kind of resources alongside the employment, but we kind of realised an organisation like ours should never really be like the next Starbucks. I think it has a natural scale to it because I think 
it requires a lot of delicate management from an HR perspective. It requires quite a lot of flexibility from that perspective. So it's not really designed to be, you know, mm, packaged up and fit. replicated and scaled. It's, if if you do that, it will fall like a pack of cards after a certain point. So, you know, that's the reason we've just stayed in Scotland with, with that footprint for the last 10 years. And the London opening two weeks ago is our first step out with Scotland in terms of the cafes. Um, and we, we, we ho have aspirations to maybe try and do Manchester and uh, some other yeah. big cities, but we'll take it slowly and, um, you know, try and make sure we've got the right opportunity for, for each place we go. Gosh, well done, Josh. Jesus, well done. In 2018, I mean, I can't believe you've done any more than what you've already done, but we're going to go on. We're going to go on, everyone listening. You built Social Bite Village. Can you tell those listening a little bit more about the village and how that came about? Yeah, we've basically been immersed in this kind of the homeless issue for some years by this stage, since 2012. We were offering food and offering jobs, but ultimately, if you really want to, you know, do something about the homeless issue that's truly going to solve it. You have to get into the issue of homes and, you know, roofs over people's heads. You know, and again, this is what I find exciting about taking an entrepreneurial approach within a charitable context. And I think it's quite rare, to, in, in my experience, within the charitable sector. Mm -hmm. There's not enough entrepreneurs going into the charitable sector, in my opinion. And I think entrepreneurship is about problem solving and it's about you know, could be creative and manifesting an idea into reality. So if your brain is just totally tracked on a particular issue, then your brain's just going to start to serve you ideas. And, you know, that that entrepreneurial process starts to happen in the area that you're focused on. And because we've been very zoned in on this particular issue, it kind of started to think, OK, what can we develop creatively around housing and accommodation? So we approached Edinburgh Council and said, do you have any vacant own uh, council owned land that we might be able to take on and develop a kind of accommodation project and the idea was to create a bit of a community we envisaged doing really beautifully designed prefabricated wooden homes um, and we approached the council and like you said we had various high profile celebrity visits so again it's a longer story but Somewhat speculatively, the short story is I decided to write a letter to George Clooney back in 2015 and invited him to Scotland and invited him to come visit our little cafe on Rose Street. And amazingly, in November 2015, he did come and, you know, brought the whole city to a complete standstill. And, you know, it, our Social Bite went from being an organisation that literally no one had ever heard of out with the immediate locality of the shop to being on the front page of every single national newspaper in the whole of the United Kingdom. It was on the news at six. I had cousins that live in South Africa phoning me up saying, I've just seen you with George Clooney on the news. Did you just like Google his address? You, know, you don't have to give it away, but I just love this idea. So I decided I'm yeah. going to write to George Clooney and just ask uh, him to come yeah. to my well, cafe. Basically, the, the slightly longer form version of the story was I was organising a big business dinner as part of my events company. So I set up this dinner called the Scottish Business Awards. Oh. The purpose of the letter was primarily to invite him to be the keynote speaker at that dinner. And we were generating significant revenue through the dinner. So I was able to pledge a donation to his foundation, which is a foundation in the Sudan. So that was the purpose of the letter. But when he started to engage positively, his team and said, you know, he could be interested in coming. 
then we started to say, well, we also have got this little thing called Social Bites, a little cafe, we work with homeless people. Would you think whilst he's in town, he might pop in for 10 minutes? And they sort of said, well, why not? It seemed a nice thing. So by the time we arrived, it was like that scene from the movie Notting Hill, where it was kind of hundreds of paparazzi and, you know, all yes. this kind of thing. So. Hopefully not the opening of the front door <laughs> yeah, with true, someone in true. their pants. Yeah. yeah, one of my best scenes ever. Um, so... Yeah, that was that. And then Lightning basically struck twice because we did the same thing just shortly after and we invited Leonardo DiCaprio and we reached out to him through the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation and almost 12 months to the day later in November 2016, he came and he came and had lunch in a restaurant and it was another kind of crazy scene. There was people leaning out of flats like playing the Titanic theme tune and all this kind of stuff. My so anyway, like our tiny little social enterprise that no one had ever heard of suddenly had this really big profile, particularly locally. So that kind of gave us a lot of leverage, really, with the council. So by the time we said, do you have any vacant land? Then everyone was like, yeah, you know, these are the guys, you know, with the yeah. George Clooney and care Who are bringing yeah. George it's, and yeah, know, Leonardo to our city. Almost became a poster child, potentially, yeah, for definitely. 100%. So, you know, that, that really helped. Suddenly things were becoming much easier, you know, and I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs will have that on their journeys where you feel you have to kind of claw with your fingernails to make any, get any traction in the early days. And as it gets going, suddenly doors start swinging open a bit easier. And that I much prefer being in that phase than the early phase. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, you know. It's still tough, but at least someone's yeah. even considering opening, uh, opening a yeah, door for, for sure. you. So we... The council ended up agreeing to lease us this plot of land for free um, in the north of the city in a really lovely spot, which has got a sea view. Um, and we started to raise money by putting on these big fundraising events, which was based on the idea of people sleeping out. So we called them Sleep in the Park. And we uh, had people sleep out on a very cold Scottish winter night uh, and raise funds. And we used those funds to build um, 10 two-bedroom prefabricated wooden homes a big community hub um, and a really beautiful kind of community environment. So that project launched in the summer of 2018. Um, and there's on-site, we commission a local charity to be on-site delivering support. So people get very intensively supported on-site. The whole thing's based on the idea of community where people are encouraged to build relationships with one another. And ultimately people live there for roughly maybe a year and then they kind of get helped onto their own mainstream flat and, and, and more people move through it. So I think there's been roughly around 60 people since it launched uh, find housing there and many have moved on to sustain their own tenancies thereafter. So yeah, it's a project we're, we're really proud of and, and hopefully one we can replicate. It's just unbelievable. And I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, some of the charities that I work with Actually, one that's being helped by an entrepreneur and one that's not. And the one that is, is absolutely innovative, moving fast. Mm. You know, there's no time really to not do things that matter and work. Whereas the other side of things, I'm wondering that they're sort of stuck in a charity sort of loop and it's, it's, it's not progressing. And I think you're right. If more entrepreneurs were able to hook into a charity or an idea, Yeah, what could we do? And that's my whole kind of thesis on life, basically, is that if you look at the pace of business, like if you think about it, whatever it was, 20 years ago, there was no such thing as a smartphone. You know, there was no such thing as social media. And now literally, I think 85% of the whole world has got us carrying around a smartphone and most of us are addicted to it and me, myself included, sort of glued to this screen all, all day. Most of people are, you know, hooked on social media. So just look at 
the pace of change of that in 20 years. And that had nothing to do with government or, mm. um, you know, the, the pace of business when you sort of align like economic resources with kind of entrepreneurial creativity, it can outstrip anything. So I think... Any it, government, any, any exactly. context. But ev everyone in that world, because of how we define what success is and everyone wants to be successful and everyone wants to win the game, everyone's ch largely channeling the majority of their creative energies towards that whole game. And I do feel that if pe entrepreneurial people picked an issue that they particularly cared about um, and just channeled that energy into that, I really believe as a society we could really solve our social issues and drive the numbers of, of things that we want to solve. But I think at the moment the model is entrepreneurs generate wealth, create employment, pay taxes, and then it's over to the government to solve the issues. And it yes. just is not going to solve them, you know. And it has, hasn't worked so far. I looked at some of the images online of these homes and was so blown away because it's they're so beautiful and it really is stunning, actually, the environment that has been created. I heard that the stove was an important factor in each home and that really struck me because they think it goes straight to the whole heart of what you've created it's not just a mm -hmm. house but it's a home yeah i mean if you find yourself homeless typically in the uk then if you're not on the street then you will go and live in some kind of temporary homeless accommodation and all that you will ever get is the absolute bare minimum. The accommodation will tend to be very dilapidated. At best, you will get a single bed and a kettle, and that's it. So what's the psychological message that that's giving to people in that situation that are, are already vulnerable is that that's all they're worth. They're not worth very much. They deserve the bare minimum. So the whole kind of idea behind the village project was to do the opposite of that and to really go over and above and invest in beautiful furnishings and a beautiful setting and plant flowers in, in the garden outside and hang pictures and paintings on the walls and just kind of give people something that gives a psychological message that they're valued and they're trusted. Um, and I think that, you know, it's definitely an important element of it. Do you think we'll ever reach a zero homelessness because I read in the Scottish government is investing 53 million to support councils and other partners to prioritise accommodation. But what are some of the most significant challenges that you see? Again, I think we could, but not if it's just purely reliant on government and not if it's just dependent on the charitable sector as it exists. You know, I do feel that we need a different focus and more entrepreneurial energy into addressing these issues. And then I believe we could address an issue, particularly in a country like Scotland, we could easily solve an issue like homelessness. Other countries of comparable size, such as Finland, um, they have done. Uh, they've drove their homelessness numbers down to almost zero. So we know it can be done, but there needs to be like a real strong focus on the issue um, from different cross segments of society. Um, and then, of course, you know, we can we can solve these challenges, but not in line with the status quo. But I think certainly a country like Scotland, we're a very small country. You know, I think there's about six million people. Mm -hmm. So the whole country is like the size of London. So why couldn't we? You know, people are going to space like yeah. if we, we can achieve we can achieve anything as a society. But well, there's not enough creative focus going into these pressing social issues and we start to become desensitized to them and we start to accept them as a fact of life mm. and you know we, we shouldn't do that and i think that's what this podcast is doing is to anyone listening that this isn't a fact of life actually and that we have got to 
dig deeper and actually understand the stories behind those who are homeless and actually understand what they've been through and where they're going and take our own responsibility for it. Before you go, I want to talk about the world's big sleep out. Um, so Social Bite, Social Bite Village are all based in Scotland, but you've taken your mission global and have inspired the rest of the world because in 2019, you organised the world's big sleep out taking place in 50 towns and cities throughout the world, including New York, London, LA, New Delhi, Hong Kong, just to name a few. And some of the world's biggest actors and musicians joined 60,000 others sleeping out under the stars. And I remember this, right? So Will Smith read a bedtime story to those in Manhattan, whilst Helen Mirren did the same for those in London. And it was this massive global event. So going back to your event skills there, tell me about this. And was it quite stressful to almost do like a live aid for homelessness sleep out type thing? Yeah, that, I'd say that was that's an understatement, really. It was very stressful. And I sometimes think back what possessed me to come up with that particular idea. We, we'd staged a series of sleep outs in Scotland. It started in 2016 and, and we did it in a little square and there was 270 people and we focused on chief executives. So we called it the CEO sleep out and there was 270 people. I remember them. And they raised about half a million pounds. And I thought, wow, this is a brilliant fundraising idea. And then in 2017, we decided to try and make it mass participation. So we called it Sleep in the Park. And we invited people from all walks of life to sleep out and we had 8,000 people sleep out in Prince's Street Gardens and we had staged a big concert and Liam Gallagher headlined it and stuff. And then after after the concert, 8,000 people slept out and it turned out as fate would have it that night. It was the coldest night of the whole year in Scotland. Temperatures dropped to minus seven degrees and those 4,000 people, they all had an individual fundraising page and they collectively raised four million pounds, um, which was pretty, was, you know, totally staggering, really, even now looking back on it, I think it was amazing. And then in 2018, we grew it to four Scottish cities and it was uh, you know, a big success again. So we'd had all this success organising this big mass participation event. And for, for some reason, I felt that we could create our own live aid kind of moment for the homelessness issue and really go for it and take a big risk and try and stage it on a global basis. And because we'd had quite a lot of just success year on year of these things, I was getting very used to lulled into a false sense of security, really, that, you know, you would state a vision and you would work really hard and it would become true. And it would, <laughs> What did you say? Yeah, you wrestle yeah, your vision into reality. You were there. Lots of wrestling was it, it going was. on, Josh. And I, you know, but I basically spent the whole year travelling, going around, trying to get all these different events lined up. And then we had to try and encourage, you know, create a marketing plan locally with local charities to encourage people to sleep out. And it was the first time really or that certainly the most significant time where my vision of what was going to happen and the reality started to diverge quite a lot in the sort of process. And I thought, oh my God, uh, is this going to work? Are we going to be able to pull this off? Are we going to run out of money? Is it, you know, will this translate out with Scotland? Are people going to raise money? So there was so many highs and low moments in the, the year that it took to, to organise that whole campaign. But yeah, I was super relieved and thrilled in the end that it managed to all happen in 52 cities, 60,000 people slept out. One of the really amazing things for me was that we managed to persuade New York to 
give us Times Square for this sleep out. And that literally started with me sat in my flat and I cold called New York City Parks Department. And the, the (laughs) the guy on the phone... The guy on the phone told me on that call, he said, no, that'll be impossible. I said, you know, we would like to do the sleep out and we've done it in Edinburgh. And he goes, no, it'll be impossible to do that in New York. He said, there's a time curfew for events in New York, so you have to uh, finish your event by 11 p.m. The the city never liked to set precedents. Um, And so he said, you'll just need to try another city. So that was how it started. And then I ended up going out there for a few days and thought, well, I might just go and meet a few people and see what happens. And I met lots of very random specs of people there's this network called the global scots network so i set up different meetings with random people with a scottish heritage in new york and i pitched them the idea and i was showing them all this video of the edinburgh event and then i met this one guy and he said oh i can't really help you but i've got a friend called bruce um he said maybe bruce could help you and he didn't really elaborate who bruce was but he phoned bruce and he set me up a meeting with this guy the next day and i was literally in new york for i think three days to frantically have these meetings and I went and met this guy, Bruce, and I showed him this video and pitched him the idea. Uh, and this guy basically turned out to be the former chief of staff to Mayor Rudy Giuliani. And he was like, Josh, this is great. He was really kind of aggressive New Yorker. And he basically phoned up someone in City Hall and set me up a meeting the following day. So then I went into City Hall, <laughs> did the pitch, showed them the video. And then they start to say, you know, this is on day three. They said, yeah, this would be very difficult to do in New York. But I don't know, maybe a venue that could work might be maybe Times Square. <laughs> And I was like, what? <laughs> uh, so I kind of went through the process, met with the NYPD and blah, blah, blah. And we ended up literally closing down all four plazas of Times Square for a night for a thousand people to sleep out uh, sleep out in. And that was, um, again, just in this whole thing of having a vision and believing you can manifest it, that for me was such an amazing like crystallization that there's no real limits to that. And the the whole campaign didn't really go exactly we massively fell short of our fundraising targets and the whole thing was very stressful. But you know, I'm proud that it it did show that you can achieve something that you know might on the face of it be very unrealistic. Gosh. Did you sleep for about 10 weeks afterwards? Yeah, and I went out and slept in Times Square as well. So I was there with my fiance at the time and we were um, just lying and looking at all the, the bright lights and thinking, wow, this is it's bonkers. That you did that, that yeah. you did that, Josh. Jeez, my goodness. Your own story really is one of driving change and advocating for others. What do you draw strength from and what do you personally do to keep yourself going? Um, yeah, I mean, I think... You know, and I'm sure, again, this will be very common to many entrepreneurial journeys is that for certainly for many years since we we set up, it was very all-consuming and there wasn't an awful lot of balance in my life. And it was kind of completely dominated by my work and, and these aspirations. I think more recently, having got married last year, um, and I think the lockdown probably helped me just to slow down and realize that there's more to life than than all this and 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 and, you know don't get totally consumed my identity up within it you know so i think now i'm feel i've got a much better balance where i exercise regularly i see friends much more i go you know and and just do nice normal things and and try not be so all consumed by that kind of drive as I have been. And I think that's really important um, Mm. for long-term sustainability of anything and just to have a happy life, which I think, you know, is important. And I think it's easy to get addicted to the the, the entrepreneurial 
constant hamster yeah, wheel. You know, and I think possibly, probably, there's no other way in the early days, or or it it won't work because you have to give it everything and more. I agree. But you know, I think it's really important that when the time comes, you take the opportunities to make the evolution because I think that's more sustainable. For, for for what you're wanting to achieve and also you know, I think it makes you a better person I think you can maybe get a bit boring uh, to your friends or your family if it's always the next the next no, thing <laughs> they love hearing about it 24 hours a day seven yeah. days a week Josh come on um, you must be bloody proud of all you've accomplished or if you are like a true entrepreneur then you don't really look back and you always look at what you've not done um, and never are satisfied tell me about what's the future of Social Bite the future of Social Bite is we want to hopefully if our London coffee shop is successful we want to continue to try and strategically expand uh, geographically so we'd love to try and do some other major cities in the UK where homelessness is an issue um, so you know Manchester Newcastle Cardiff wherever um, so the, the London shop is a bit of a test case for us so I think that's hopefully going to be a, a strong part of our future if, if the London one's successful and then you know I think we want to continue to innovate and continue to come up with with new sort of entrepreneurial ideas around the homeless issue we're planning to replicate the village project in two more cities um, so we want to do that now in Dundee and Glasgow um, and we have some other kind of creative ideas around other accommodation models we can develop so we want to continue to try and apply our entrepreneurial energy to the issue and kind of just see where the road takes us yeah I wish you all the luck Josh really it's what a pleasure it's been to speak to you today and completely inspiring and oh, so many things I'm going to take away from this. Um, before I do end the podcast with asking you to read a letter to your younger self, I use the analogy that running your business is like being on an epic roller coaster. So there's lots and lots of highs, there's tons of lows. What would you say has been one of your biggest lows throughout your career? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this and I don't know. I suppose for me, maybe that early, early stage startup mode, totally buried under it. Like I said, two young homeless guys living in a one bedroom flat with me, piled on three stone in weight, worried whether we could meet payroll the next week. That's a low kind of existence, I think. And I don't wish, as much as I love entrepreneurship, I almost don't wish the startup phase on my worst enemies. Um, <laughs> so, you know, so I, I'd say... I wouldn't want to true, re I wouldn't true, I don't think I would yeah. ever have the energy to redo that and hustle um in such a way again um and I'm glad you know hopefully I won't have to so yeah that's the low and then I, I think the high for me like I say probably that Times Square moment um and you know like I said my wife's pregnant my wife Suki's pregnant so um I'm starting to think about when my kid gets to a certain age if I don't achieve anything ever out anything else in my life then that's something that maybe they could take inspiration from that wow you really can achieve what you set your mind to my dad always taught me that it was always you can achieve whatever you set your mind to um and i think that's a really important thing for young people to believe and that for me because it was out with scotland and it was in this kind of uh globally iconic location and we managed to shut the whole thing down for a night and for that one night we kind of made our little issue that we'd been really passionate about we made it the world's issue for one night so that for me was definitely, despite its trials and tribulations and stresses, was probably um, a highlight. I love how we came full circle to talking about your dad and what he had taught you through his entrepreneurial journey. And it's 
straight through to you and maybe possibly your child, even though we wouldn't wish <laughs> those startup days um, on anybody. Um, this this lovely young soul that's coming into the world is going to be super proud of their parents. But now it's the time in this podcast where I hand over to you to read your letter to your younger self. And I don't know what it's going to say. And for those of you listening, I always have my glasses on and I take my glasses off at this moment because I can sit back and relax and hand over to you, Josh. Thank you. Um, Okay. Here we go. Dear Josh, you have been dealt some very good cards in life as you have come into the world a loving family, financial support, and the toolkit to achieve what you want to in life. Try and use that toolkit to help the people who weren't dealt such good cards. You do have the power to change the world. We all do. The world is malleable. Don't be a product of your environment. Make your environment a product of you. Your role in life will be to stick up for the downtrodden and the marginalised and to give a voice to the voiceless. Don't forget it. It will bring you happiness. You can achieve whatever you set your mind to, and there are no limits to that. Entrepreneurship is simply the act of creation. You will be able to manifest your ideas into reality. So think carefully about which ideas you want to manifest and why. Remember that concepts such as money and success are simply arbitrary man-made constructs, and you don't have to subscribe to them. Instead, you can create your own definition of what success means to you. Don't try and win the game. Try and rewrite the rules. Don't be afraid of failure. If you do fail, then fail whilst daring greatly, so that your place shall never be with those odd and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. You've never lived until you've almost died. Take risks risks whilst you're young, because your priorities will shift as you get older, and so they should. Use your entrepreneurial energy, but do not lose your identity to your entrepreneurial creations. You are more than what you create, and there is more to life than your work. Keep your ego in check. Have fun, travel the world, seek out new experiences, go and see live music and sing your heart out. Dance, laugh a lot, be in the moment, surround yourself with positive people and love with all of your heart. Slow down. Spend time with the people you love. Be the best brother you can be. Enjoy the company of your parents as they will become your friends and biggest supporters. Go and see your gran often because she won't be around forever. And don't forget to phone your mum. Don't be tribalistic. There's no such thing as them and us. There is only us. And know that there is magic in the world. When you grow up, almost everyone on earth will be addicted and glued to a handheld device called a mobile smartphone, which doesn't yet exist. Don't be on your phone too much. It can be addictive and it detracts from life. Don't subscribe to social media can be a waste of time. In the fullness of time, smartphones will probably be thought of as a terrible thing for human beings, constantly distracting us and preventing us from being present and connected to each other in the moment. Having said that, please always remember this quote from the founder of Apple, who invented the smartphone, as it will come to summarise your approach to life. Steve Jobs said, When you grow up, you tend to get told that the world is the way that it is. And your life is just to live your life and try not to bash into the walls too much. But that is a very limited life. Life can be much broader when you discover one simple fact. And that is that everything around you that you call life was made up 
by people that are no smarter than you. And you can change it. You can influence it. You can build your own things that other people can use. Shake off this erroneous notion that life is just there and you're just going to live in it versus embrace it, change it, make your mark upon it. When you learn that, you will never be the same again. And that's very true. Lots of love, Josh. <laughs> so eloquent. <laughs> Tears in my eyes and just, wow, amazing. And they just broke the mould when they made you. And, uh, you know, you're so young still and you've got so much still to give. And um, you're a shining example to all of us about what we can do with our businesses, how we should uh, uh, be inspired to make change and as you said not live in the comfort you know the the set um description of what life is meant to be and um it's just unbelievable no, what you've you. done and i wish you all the success and i hope you have those moments now with your future child where you can tell them all the stories at night time the bedtime stories <laughs> will be just so glorious because they'll be yours and your wife so thank you so so much thank you oh, thank you holly before you go, don't forget to head to adobe.com slash go slash Holly Tucker to find out how Adobe Express can fuel creativity in your business. And if you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co. 